Okay, this is the podcast for week seven. Uh, in week seven, we are talking about two chapters from Publicity's Secret, uh, How Technicolor Capitalizes on Democracy by Jody Dean. Jody Dean is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. That's in upstate New York. Um, so, and in some sense, this is the last reading for what we consider to be this, what I consider to be this first unit of our class and the, the unit on the notion of the public sphere and public use of reason. In the second unit, we're going to turn to some of the current uh, 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 crises um, or problems of the techno public sphere of of, of the internet and the contemporary world. So in some sense, this book is a kind of transition uh, between one and the other. Because as, as, as Jody Dean points out, uh, in the work of people like Habermas, who we discussed, and others, there is this notion that publicity was a necessary element of democracy, or she put it, democracy demands publicity. Uh, and in some sense, publicity was supposed to be the the public sphere is supposed to be the place where the the people, the public, could debate and discuss and come to know their own positions. Um, and secondly, publicity was often understood to be a check on the excesses of sovereign or state power by by seeing what it was the rulers were doing. Um, and exposing that to the public, um, one could um, uh, uh, put a check on it in the sense of uh, uh, stop it or so on and so forth. You can think about there's a whole history um, up through the modern age of moments where um, political power was challenged by the secret functionings of what government leaders were doing, say, for example, the Pentagon Papers um, uh, or other examples where uh, people were able to expose what the government, what the military, what whatever was doing behind closed doors, and in doing so, challenged it and changed it. Right? So this idea, in some sense, is that publicity is good, that publicity makes it possible for the, the people in a democracy to know and understand their own perspective, but it also makes it possible to, to hold the ruling, the rulers to, uh, to task and to hold them in check. Now, uh, even though Dean's book is from 2001, so it's not exactly new, but it's going to help us get to some newer stuff. And as she points out, even in 2001, there's a fundamental uh, shift of the nature of publicity. Um, or at least publicity has to be seen as increasingly a part, not just of the political contestation of the authority of rulers, but publicity has become a fundamental aspect of what she calls communicative capitalism. And by communicative capitalism, she simply means uh, the current stage of capitalism in which integral to the production and marketing of commodities and services is the necessary uh, collection of information. 
in the sense that every time we shop or go into a store um, or especially shop online, one of the very important things we do aside from buy products is we generate information, um, information about our tastes, about where we are, uh, who we are, and so on. And that information is utilized in order to sell us more products. Um, and, you know, this is why if you notice, you know, often when you buy something, there's this desperate desire, will you rate your transaction? In this constant sense that if you give information, um, it will uh, improve the the very systems by which things are produced and sold. Um, so part of what Jody Dean is, is interested in about what is happening to now that publicity has become not just a political ideal to um, question and interrogate rulers from kings on down to presidents, but it's become an economic reality. How does that change the nature of publicity? Um, and she says that publicity is the, the ideology of technoculture. Uh, that's on page four. Um, she says, publicity argues the ideology of technoculture the meme, she gives a meme form of her own formulation. Publicity is to technoculture what liberalism is to capitalism. It is the ideology that constitutes the truth conditions of global information age capital. Publicity is what makes today's communicative capitalism seem perfectly normal. Or, sorry, perfectly natural. And I want to talk about that naturalization and talk about what she means by ideology. I mean, ideology is a complicated word with a long history. Usually, ideology refers to some kind of distortion or uh, 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 deception where people believe one thing and are made to believe or told to believe one thing right the the initial formula for ideology coming back from from Marx was you know the ruling ideas or the ideas of the ruling class that people um, come to believe that the, the the very ideas that serve the ruling class, serve them as well, even though they're not in in the ruling class. So they are, in some sense, deceived about their own interests and their own perspective. Now, uh, Dean takes her point of reference from uh, Slavov Žižek, uh, an influential Slovenian philosopher, to suggest that ideology is not so much about a deception in terms of what one believes, but really a deception in terms of how one acts. She gives an example on page five of the introduction that, introduced, that, that, that sets this up. She says, um, the grocery store where I shop, for example, supplies customers with a discount card. When customers swipe their cards, the store gets information about our buying habits, product preferences, and so forth. I willingly let the store track me and my purchases, facilitate its edging out of smaller local markets, and help it tighten its hold on my consumption, and often for savings of only about 30 cents. I'm neither coerced into using my shopper's card nor deceived about its function. I'm not deluded into thinking that the store really wants me to save money. I cynically accept that it's trying to make money, and I actually help it do so by shopping there. 
I don't need a critique of ideology to expose my false consciences. I have a critical distance from my actions when I'm doing, but I still do it. Then she goes on to say, the Zizekian concept of ideology draws attention to the persistence of these actions that fly in the face of what one knows. If we know we are just going through the motions or just doing something for the sake of appearances, we are still acting. This acting, moreover, materializes a set of beliefs. It reproduces not only the belief that appearances matter, say, but also the very appearances that matter, the appearances in which we believe. This materialized set of beliefs is ideology. So in Zizek's account of ideology, actions and belief go together. They stand apart from knowledge. Actions manifest an underlying belief that persists regardless of what one knows. So in some sense, for her, the, the, the basic formula of ideology is this kind of I know but. And one of the things she points out, and I think this is interesting um, in relationship to the, the documentary, what is democracy, right? Where one of the things that was talked about is that the fundamental orientation towards democracy um, that Astor Taylor, the maker, and a lot of people she talked to is, is this sense of like, I know democracy is corrupted by private interests, is held hostage by um, market forces, is, you know, all these various things of its limitations. Like, I know it's not in some sense, effective or real, but I act as if it is real. I mean, Zizek, and I think Dean with Zizek would say that is ideology. So in other words, ideology is the moment when you you say you know something. Right? I know cigarettes are bad for me. I know fast food is bad for me. I know X, but I do Y. I go on smoking, I go on eating fast food. Or to use an example that I think is quite um, germane to, to the things that, that Dean is talking about here, I know that um, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., are really just advertising platforms. Their real function is to try to extract information from me in order to pinpoint more accurate advertisements towards me, but I continue to act to use them and I continue to act as if they are uh, uh, platforms that are set up for the sole purpose of allowing me to communicate and share and so on and so on and so forth. So in in ideology in this in this understanding, we know the truth, but we act differently. Um, and that and that acting differently has to do with a kind of belief that that she refers to as a fantasy, um, as she says um, uh, on page seven. Um, Zizek's version shifts the effects of ideology from what we know to what we do, especially when we know better. Um, and he emphasizes the basic formula for fetishism in general is I know, but nonetheless. And so underneath that, nevertheless, there's a there's a, what she calls a fantasy. The fantasy is uh, the belief that that we hold on to. Um, the belief, say, for example, so we know democracy is corrupted. It doesn't really 
It doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. It allows, instead of allowing for the people to articulate and manifest their wishes and wills, it really allows for um, the wealthy and the powerful to kind of repackage and sell their interests to the people. So we know that, but, but the fact that we continue to act as if it matters, we continue to show up and vote and so on and so forth, suggests that there is an underlying fantasy um, that we hold on to as unarticulated. Um, and as she also points out that there's another example with respect to online culture is the fantasy is this idea that um, even though we know that um, uh, that you know much of what we encounter is put out there for all kinds of commercial and other interests online, we still believe and act as if the the truth is out there. So so ideology in this reading is not so much about what one thinks, not so much about a distortion of the facts of the matter or whatever. People are pretty clear about the facts of the matter, right? In the sense that they know that democracy has all kinds of flaws. They know that fast food is terrible for them. They know that smoking is terrible for them. It's the knowledge is in some sense correct. Then there is this gap between the knowledge and the action because people act uh, differently from that knowledge. So uh, people continue to participate in democracy, continue to smoke, continue to eat fast food, continue to use social media, whatever the case may be. Um, and in order to explain this gap between the knowledge and one's action, there has to be this uh, fantasy. So um, what then is the fantasy of the public? Um, and as she says on page nine, the public sphere provides democratic theory with a reassuring fantasy of a unitary site and subject of dem democratic governance. Dem democracy appears convincing, in other words, because of the fantasy that we are all part of the same thing, members of the same public. We don't have to worry about violence and factionalism tearing us apart, nor do we need to concern ourselves with racial, sexual, or class conflict, because none of these ma matters is fundamental. The public is a unity. The collective subject is capable of self-governance. And then as she goes on to say on page nine, with this underlying fantasy of unity, the ideal of a public displaces antagonism from politics. The antagonism up reappears, however, in the form of the secret. So the public is an idea that somehow, right, we we um we could exist without as she says violence and factionalism or exist without the very uh, real differences and conflicts of class um uh, race so on and so forth so the public in some sense um is a fantasy of a kind of imagined unity without antagonism but of course, because antagonisms continue to go on, because the public doesn't cohere, the secret becomes 
the, the way of explaining that antagonism. As she says, protecting the fantasy of a unitary public, a political all from its own impossibility, the secret renders as a contingent gap what is really the fact of the fundamental split. Antagonism and rupture of, pol of politics. So, you know, part of the role the secret plays is this notion that if there are conflicts, and of course there are conflicts in in democracy and in the public sphere, if there are conflicts, it is because everyone doesn't know the secret. Um, uh, whatever is being kept from the people. If people could see and understand the secret, um, then they would truly see what is going on. And, and people would all, would all, if they could all see, then we'd all be whole again. I mean, one of the interesting things, and we're not going to get to this for, for a while, but like one of the interesting things in contemporary conspiracy theories is really this notion that like, that, um, this notion that, you know, we as a nation, we're, we're divided, we're antagonistic, we're split. That's because they are keeping us sort of antagonistic and split into all these groups. But if, if we all knew what was really going on, and you can fill in the really going on in terms of, of what's actually happening behind the scenes, you know, black helicopters, lizard people, whatever. Uh, if we all knew what was really going on, um, we would come together. So, um, uh, what we see now is the way in which publicity requires the secret in order to function. Um, publicity as a fantasy, as an ideal, the ideal that, that everything would be better if everything was out in the open, um, is uh, uh, sustained by this belief the only thing that is keeping everything from going well is this is a secret right? so there's a, this need to constantly expose the secret um, behind uh, the uh, the publicity um, to render everything public. And then and the very idea that something is not entirely public is in some sense um, already suspicious. right? I mean, you think about there's, you know, uh, uh, a few years ago, there's a, a, a pizza place in in Washington, DC um, called Comet Ping Pong. And for reasons that I'm not entirely sure, a, a conspiracy theory emerged that um, in the, the basement of this place was part of some um, cabal of, of powerful pedophiles in government and so on and so forth. And, and it's got to the point where someone actually showed up there with a, with, with a gun and wanted to go into the basement and break everyone out. Well, it turns out that um, this pizza place has no basement. But in some sense, I think that there's a sense that the very existence or even the idea that something might have a basement, that something is not seen 
already makes it suspect. Um, and this idea of, um, of the need for total transparency, which we see, I mean, this is in some sense espoused by, um, by corporations when they want our information, right? The more information we give them, the better they can serve us. Secrecy would, would hinder the functioning of that. It's also kind of part of the ideal of a kind of the, the social media view of the world that, um, that secrecy, keeping in the dark about things can, is only ever suspect, right? Like, why are you not sharing? Why are you not posting? Why are you not... Um, uh, uh, or why you're keeping your things private instead of sharing them to everyone, that there's this idea that that, that something is secret makes it necessarily suspect. But not everything, I mean, and here's the problem, is that publicity keeps creating the idea of the secret because it needs it as a kind of fantasy, because every time things don't go well in terms of the functioning of society, there is this notion that that, that failure has to do with something that is secret. If we could just expose that secret, um, then we could, um, uh, make everything function again, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, think about the, the very f prominent sort of clickbait, right? The clickbait that promises you, like doctors don't want you to know this secret of diets or beauticians or whomever. But there's always this idea that these people out there, um, and whether they be doctors or people who do makeup and beauty or whatever the case may be, um, and they are able to function and have power over us only because they are keeping something secret. And if we could expose that secret, um, then we would eliminate their power um, and become closer to realizing a kind of democratic ideal of the people in charge of their own lives and own destiny. I'm gonna pause here and pick up again for, for part two. Okay, picking up with this concept of the public. Um, on page 19, Dean cites Jeremy Bentham and Jeremy Bentham's idea that what we, what we refer to as the public is actually really made up of three different classes. There's the many who have no time for public affairs. I don't follow the, you know, those who say, I don't follow the news. I don't, you know, I don't pay attention to this sort of stuff. Um, there are the middle who believe through the judgment of others, trust the experts and so on and so forth. Um, and then the few who judge for themselves on the basis of the available information. Um, and, or as, Dean puts it, there's a relationship between what she refers to as the public supposed to know and the public supposed to believe. 
Um, and this, to some extent, and this is something we're going to get more into in, in coming weeks. I mean, I think one of the real problems of the public and contemporary politics is on some level, it's almost irreducible that um, we require to trust in experts, right? That there are just too much, there's too much knowledge about too many different and disparate fields of information um, that to know it all for yourself um, is just an impossible thing, right? So if you, if you go to log on to a new site and any given day, there might be discussions of viruses, vaccines, and RDNA, and so on. There might be a discussion of uh, carbon and fossil fuels. There might be a discussion about political turmoil in Haiti, so on and so on and so forth. The sheer number of different types of knowledge that's required to just make sense of the world exceeds anyone's, I mean, literally anyone's uh, capacity. Because even if you were to spend, you know, your life in school and pursue an advanced degree, you could probably master one of those fields. Right? You could, virology or, or, or environmental science or um, the political history of the Caribbean or whatever the case may be to, to, to cite my three examples. So most of us um, believe in the supposed public supposed to know. We believe that someone out there knows. Um, and so, you know, part of what publicity does um, is not so much make it possible in the modern age, it's not so much make it possible for everyone to judge on every matter, but its goal is to reinforce the idea that someone knows uh, and that things are being done in accordance with that, what that someone knows. So there is a relationship between the, the, what she refers to as the public supposed to believe, the public that um, uh, uh, more or less trusts that even though they don't have the knowledge, there are people out there with the knowledge. And those people are the public supposed to know. And that so rather than publicity being a matter of sort of uh, everyone exposed be, be exposed and weighing in on every matter it's really a relationship publicity is about a relationship of sustaining belief through the supposition that someone out there knows um but then lastly i just want to return to habermas again who she talks about at length um and as she points out that um that the, the very thing um, uh, that Habermas seemed to call for seems to have been answered and not in a way that worked out for Habermas, right? as, she, as she points out on page 38. Habermas's call for more publicity seems to have been answered by and in contemporary techno culture. 
But the result has not been a new rational public sphere. Instead, permanent media, interconnected television, newspaper, radio, internet use their own critical self-reflection to try to strengthen their hold on popular imaginations. Trying to distinguish between consumer-oriented and critical publicity makes no sense in the networks of the information age. Clearly, media engage in both at once. Media repeatedly criticize themselves and uses self-criticism to sell, copy, and generate an audience. Talking heads attack the polarizing emotion and spectacle of television shows featuring talking heads. They talk and criticize for us, even as they implore us to watch, to be in the know. In the 800-channel satellite TV universe, it's necessary to feed the pundit to provide fast, cheap commentary dished up as content. What's easier than reversing the cameras, ta- taping the taping, reflecting on the process of production is now more appealing than focusing on what is produced. And the faceless materialization of belief, critical publicity seems a norm out of control, a kind of hobber masochism of media self-cannibalization. I believe she coined that term, hobber masochism. So, um, which doesn't really work as the way hobber moss, hobber mass, mass, you don't pronounce it to the same way, but whatever. I mean, the point being is that if you remember, and this is the last question we asked about hobber moss at the end of the structural transformation of the public sphere says, you know, there are these two different types of publicity. There's sort of the, there's publicity in the sense of a generated, manufactured publicity oriented towards selling people stuff or selling people ideas or candidates. And there's publicity as sort of critical, reflective, self-aware discussion. And uh, the, the key is to kind of keep the second one going to create spaces for for this public use of reason oriented towards discussion and debate rather than persuasion and so on. Um, and as Dean says in that page I just read from page 38, that that distinction has entirely broken down because uh, one of the primary means of um, of sort of the media keeping us enthralled is to constantly offer itself criticism in the sense of um, uh, of running an expose, right? Um, where uh, or discussing how it is the media that's tearing us apart and so on and so forth, right? It's pretty much the, the standard default position for the media today is to be anti-media. I mean, in, in some sense, this, this conflation of the critical and the commercial sides of publicity can even be found in commercials themselves, right? There are so many commercials now um, that are themselves critical of commercials that uh, claim to be, um, you know, make fun of the entire idea. I mean, for a long time, uh, Sprite, the soft drink did this, where you have spokespeople making fun of the idea of spokespeople. Uh, You shouldn't listen to them. You should obey your thirst. Or you have sort of commercials that intentionally fail at being commercials that kind of expose their 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 hack way of advertising something that i mean the the commercials are themselves the critics of commercials so that's another example of what she's talking about is that the very thing that habermas is 
is talking about the idea that that we need to distinguish between the critical public sphere and the pervasive public sphere has broken down in the sense that the the pervasive public sphere constantly uses the tools of criticism in order to uh, uh, advertise and sell itself. So, um, you know, every every personality on the news, regardless of political orientation, the first thing they do is sell themselves by pointing out how everyone else is corrupt and so on and so forth and uses that general corruption as their selling point. So, so media becomes, in some sense, its own uh, 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 its own critic, but that critic paradoxically, that criticism paradoxically, is used to sell people on more media. Okay, so um, so two questions for this for this week. Um, the first has to do with the notion of ideology that Dean puts forward um, in the sense that ideology functions not so much by um, concealing what people know, but more by um, this gap between what people know and what people do, right? That the in some sense, a generic formula of ideology in this version is, I know X is bad in some form or another, but I do it just the same. So it's a very cynical, I mean, ideology claims cynicism itself, just as I was talking about in the same way that the media claims criticism of media, that ideology claims to, to know, um, but... Uh, but people act, act anyways. And that action reveals what she refers to as a fantasy or a deeper belief. Um, so I guess going back to the, the, the um, questions from the documentary, I'm, I'm interested in this idea that democracy itself is, um, or that there's a fundamental ideology underlying democracy, that democracy... We know it is not functioning, but we act as if it does. And the question then is, what is the belief that sustains that action? Um, so that's one question to ask. I mean, another version is, 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 and I'd be curious if people have other examples from their own actions or they've seen around where this, you can see this structure of, I know... X is bad, but I'm going to do X anyways. Um, so that's the first question. You can take it in two different variations. You can talk about what is the belief that sustains democracy, or if you're interested more in giving me an example, what is an example of this kind of ideological uh, action in which one does something um, sort of cynically. And of course, the point is that you still do it, right? I mean, that's the point that Dean is trying to make here is that, um, you know, it's sort of like uh, um, the way in which like, like 
companies that make movies or whatever, they don't really care if you're going to see the movie because you hear it's so bad. And you're going to see it ironically to make fun of it. At the end of the day, there is no difference between dollars spent ironically and dollars spent sincerely. Uh, Just in the same way, there is no difference between if you, um, you know, say, for example, eat fast food. There is no difference between the person who eats fast food and actually believes it's good for them or doesn't care about the issue and the person who eats fast food and says, yeah, I know this is bad for me and I shouldn't, but right, there is no difference the, at the level of action um, uh, because at the end of the day, you do the thing and it's the doing that matters more than what you know or think, right? So from this formulation, ideology is what you do, not what you know. Um, and the gap between what one knows and what one does is sustained by a kind of fantasy or belief. So you can either answer the question, what is the fantasy that sustains democracy? Like, why can't we give up on this notion if it, if it is so flawed? And then, or secondly, if, you, if, if that question doesn't interest you, you can take up the, um, can you give me an example of a um, similar kind of cynical action which doesn't correspond with one's knowledge and if you want to talk about what the fantasy is there that'd be interesting too um and then the second question um has to do with precisely what she's trying to get us to think about like how has when she calls this thing communicative capitalism how has the economic imperative of publicity of sharing information um uh, of communicating all the time um, how has that sort of fundamentally transformed the political ideal of publicity that people like Habermas espouse? So those are the two questions for this week.